Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. Eliza, this week is different. We're doing a themed week here on This Is Taste. I love a theme week. What's this theme? So this episode is the first of three from principals or editors or founders or I'm not I'm going to be vague because I don't want to say who each interview is with to spoil the surprise. But these are the key figures in the Savour magazine universe, past, present and future. Why Savour? Why a whole week for Savour? It's a great question because, you know, food media is, is not a new thing. There's been magazines around forever. We, we talk about gourmet almost weekly here on, on This Is Taste, and I feel like we could probably do this with gourmet. But Savour was not gourmet. It was founded in 1994 by Dorothy Kalins, Michael Grossman, Christopher Hirschheimer, and Coleman Andrews. And it was founded on the principle that food was not just food. It wasn't just recipes. Food had story. Food had place. And this is a, a tenet that when I founded Taste... Uh, with Anna Hiesel back in 2017 and many others, and continue to this day with you, Eliza. This is at really the core of our beliefs of what we do here at Taste and what many do in food media. But before Savour was launched in 94, it wasn't as clear. And so this week is a tribute in some ways, but it's also looking forward in some ways uh, in the universe of Savour. So we're looking to the past, we're looking to the future, and it's all happening right now in the present. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I wanted to talk about why this magazine was so important to me personally. Because for me as an editor, you know, I came into it with the James Olsen era, which, which you know, started in the early 2000s, roughly. You know, before that was Dorothy and Coleman were doing it, and, and James worked under Coleman later and would take over. But what Savour did, and, and through James' book work earlier, was was it said that there's a documentary approach to food writing, which is something that I hold really deeply um, and close to me, um, meaning that you don't have to have a photo studio to do food media. You don't have to have a professional test kitchen to do food media, though, of course, Savour had one and has one. You only need a story at origin and you need an inquisitive writer, editor, etc. to kind of tell that story. And James, what he was, would do with Savour and what Dorothy and Coleman did before that, they would place origin at the center of their story. So, for example, Oslin did a, a Mexico issue, a whole issue about Mexico. And when he did that, it wasn't that wasn't a common thing. You know, maybe it was in travel magazines, but it was full of luxury hotels and and stories about white people. But what James did with that issue and, and many other themed issues was go to the source, take the staff there. This was time he did it with the India issue, which is quite famous and infamous in some ways, um, would because he ripped up the issue, I believe, uh, and restarted halfway through. Um, he would take a staff to the country and, and report on it. And this was at that heart of Savour. And and one real tentpole that I think many of our listeners will remember is the Silver 100. Do you, do, Liza, are you familiar with that at all, the Silver 100? No, tell me about it. The, the Silver 100 was kind of the food internet before the food internet. And it started almost at the beginning of Savour and would continue through the, the Prince run um, into the 2020s. And essentially, it was a hundred things that the editors decided that they wanted to call out. And it was everything from locations like Richmond, Virginia was one I remember, to like ingredients, salsa matcha, hummus, 
uh, tahini, et cetera. Like, like things that we take for, for granted today as being part of our lexicon, the Savur 100 was calling these out in like a very complete issue. And also cooking techniques that perhaps weren't at the tip of our tongues back in the 90s and 2000s. And, and really the Savur 100 was kind of a guide every year to all these refreshing ideas about food. Well, it sounds great. And I think as somebody that's very much caught up in the present day of food media, I'm excited to get to listen and revisit the past and also kind of think about that in regards to the future as well. I really hope you enjoy this week of Savor episodes. And here is Dorothy Kamins. We actually did a focus group. We mocked up some covers. And so the people in the focus groups were demographically correct, and it didn't bother them that they didn't know what the magazine was called or how to pronounce it. They got that it was authentic. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. So we're starting with Dorothy Kalins, this first interview. Dorothy founded Savor in 1994. She was then the editor-in-chief of Metropolitan Home, and as you'll hear in this interview, decided that there needed to be a new food magazine. So she recruited some friends, and along the way, had a vision for what Savor magazine would be. And in this episode, we talk about those early days and really finding the voice of Savor. We find out how she staffed it, and eventually why she left it. It's a really great first episode this week of Savor episodes, And, you know, we couldn't start with anyone other than Dorothy Kalins. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. Dorothy Kalins, welcome to This Is Taste. Pleased to be here. Long time coming. I'm such a huge fan of your work. And um, we don't really know each other, but I want to get I want to know you. Well, this is is a start. start. This is a start, and The Kitchen Whispers is your a memoir that you released last year, and um, had the pleasure of reading through it, and we'll cover that in the second part of the interview. But really, I wanted to have you in your co-founder of Savor, just from the jump. What? How did you intend for it to be pronounced when you were writing that word on an, in a notepad? How? What did you want people to pronounce? Uh, that's a great question. So, we we were a tiny little publishing company. It was run by Chris Meir. It was Meir Communications. Chris had been the head of magazines at Time Inc. He was a publisher of Time. And one of the things that he did was to run a very demographically focused group of magazines that went to kind of high, not only moneyed people, but well-educated people who were sophisticated, people who constitute a magazine audience. And and so our, so he had met a man named Daniel Bonnier, mm-hmm. who is from that, the original Swedish publishing company, but he had done a magazine called Sever with an S in Paris, and it was very successful. And he, I don't know, they made a deal. And that was before I was hired as editor-in-chief of the company. Okay. And and before you and Coleman Andrews iterated it and created it and, and mood-boarded it and did all that, and we'll get into that. So it was a name you inherited, essentially. We didn't inherit. Chris said, do you think we could make – look, I wanted to do – let's go back a couple of steps. At Metropolitan Home, Coleman – Which you founded as well. Which I founded. 
Coleman Andrews was one of my one of my guys. You know, was 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 a was a the food editor, food primary food writer. We had worked together for maybe ten or fifteen years yeah. because actually he worked on Apartment Life, which was the antecedent mm-hmm. of Met Home. And you and him came together and did a lot of food reporting for Metropolitan Home. And clearly you both loved it so much. And you were like sneaking food. You also would sneak food in Newsweek where you were a top editor as well. (laughs) So, and Christopher Hersheimer had moved from Galena, Illinois. She was married to an an editor who I was very close to, Jim Hersheimer, who, and we had worked together in Apartment Life. I met Christopher. We became great friends. She had started a restaurant in Galena, Illinois, and then they moved to Bucks County. And Christopher became the food, long story short, became the food editor of Met Home. So before I even left Meredith, there was the idea that Coleman and Christopher and I would sit in a room and say, if we could make any magazine we wanted to, what would we do? And it was a food magazine. There was no question about it. And it was a food magazine that we wanted to read. Yeah. You write in your memoir about how Savor was being founded. You were going against the gushing or insipid nature of most food writing then. That's what you wrote in your memoir. What was wrong with food writing at that point? Well, it was commodity-based. In other words, advertising was driving food editorial. So... If you wanted X mayonnaise or mustard or rum or whatever, you would pander to them, even to the extent of mentioning the brand in the recipe, which seems sacrilegious to me. I mean, why, you know, that's just What are we doing here if we're putting, like, the brand of the mayonnaise as, like, the one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What are we doing? I mean, you're not a reader service. And we realized that, Well, at Met Home, we had developed a very important food program. Coleman grew up with Alice and Jonathan and and Larry Forgione. All those people were his buddies. Waters and and, uh, Waxman. Yes, sorry. Sorry. All good. All good. We can go first name with those guys. But they were his, you know, they were West Coast. And they were, and actually the first time I ever met Coleman in the flesh, and then there's, was um, in M- Michael's in Santa Monica, yeah. and Jonathan Waxman was a chef. Yeah. So that was those. That was way. That was apartment life days. So we've we've known each other. We've kind of been on the same wavelength. And when Met Home became the kind of preeminent contemporary magazine for architecture and design. It also became a food magazine. Yeah. And and because you saw right away that they went hand in hand. Uh, homes. But see, the we need to back up and just like give our listeners context. This is like ni- in the 1980s, which is food was not a hobby. It was very much a trade. It was very much um, an afterthought. But you saw the storytelling and you saw the editorial. And we saw the kitchens. Mm-hmm. We came in through the kitchen door, and then it was all about who was doing the equivalent of what architects and designers were doing in the home, in the kitchen. Who was making the food that was our food that we were really excited about? So 
Coleman and Christopher and I sat in my office, and I picture this to this day. I don't have the, but I don't have the notes. Mm-hmm. But we 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 conjured up a magazine called Home Cooking, hmm. and it was what we were going to do. Um, fast forward to Met Home Get Sold mm-hmm. after. I was there for 11 years as editor. I decided not to go with it to Hachette, where it was his new home. And when we met Chris Meir, who was launching a publishing company that was demographically geared to the same readers that we were serving at Met Home, and he said, do you think you can do a food magazine? We said, we really want to do a food we magazine. We have the notes. We've been we, talking we about it. We have been, we, you know, so... so that's what that's real. Oh, so you asked about Sever with an S. Yeah. So he had met this Daniel Bonnier, who was, as I say, a spur of the family of the Bonnier Publishing Company in Sweden. And he said, could you do this magazine here in America? So I went to Paris and met with Danielle, and it was he was lovely, and they had a it was a lovely magazine, very photographically driven, um, but we, still very much the norm. A little bit less the norm. It wasn't as commercial as m- most food magazines. Oh, okay, so that's even it's a positive. Even French, no, and they and they use very good photographers. Mm-hmm. They used they went on location and they but they still had pictures where the wine bottle had the cap still on it <laughs> in the picture with the glasses of yeah. the wine. We had that first issue translated and it's it just it, we we just thought, you know what, in a way we're more sophisticated. Yeah. Well, editorially you were. I mean, it was New York City publishing in the late 80s and that was like the center of the world for right. publishing. Well, and we thought, how do we differentiate ourselves? Because there were plenty of food magazines in America yeah. then. Well, let's go over the set. I mean, we've got BA, right, is, is happening. Right. So Bon Appetit was, I don't think, as yet owned by Condé Nast. Yeah. It was still published on the West Coast. Um, there was Food and Wine, which was an American Express public- publishing mm-hmm. adventure, which was the counterpart to Travel and Leisure. and there was gourmet. Yep. And gourmet was a long-standing old venerable magazine hadn't been Yeah, it hadn't been Ruth Reuschold yet. Well, they didn't, you know, they yeah. didn't realize they needed to do that. Right. It was an we, old for like very affluent Upper East Side. Well, I think it was kind of your grandmother's magazine. Okay. I right. think it was something I think it was your grandmother went went to San Francisco and she had a a meal at the top of the Clift Hotel, and <laughs> right. she wanted to know what was in that meal and how that duck was done. Yeah. And that was kind of, it was an old, very Ru- old fashion. Ruth writes about that in her memoir about the previous before gourmet. It's very interesting mm-hmm. to talk to her about that. Um, so the competitive set, and what about like Better Homes and Gardens and like some of those women's magazines? So they were mass. Yeah. And the, the, the genius of Chris Meir was that he realized you would never, you could never... Better Homes and Gardens famously had 6,600,666 readers. <laughs> right, that right. was their thing. <laughs> and you, if you were editing to a targeted audience, you had to charge them more money and you had to have fewer of them. Yep. Because it was the cream of 
of yep. that demographic. And he was smart enough to know that's how you had to market to them. Okay, so your task is to translate this French publication that wasn't really written that well and had some decent editorial. And and it had Sever with an S. Sever with an S. And we, which we, is like a big point because with an S, it's like, what does that mean? So Daniel in and I, I remember it was snowing in Paris that night and we sat in a little restaurant and we looked at each other. There's no way, nobody's going to know what Sever means to begin with with an S. So, Happily, the the word in French works with an S or without. Right. Happily. F- flavor or flavors, right. basically, yeah. is the same right. Same translation. So, okay. So, we had a, uh, an agreement. We had the first issue translated, and it was so bad. Yeah. And the writing, yeah, the writing, the was, writing not... was just not there. Yeah, the writing and, wasn't good. And so, our ambition was had to be, this was a magazine It started really with the marketing. If you were going to get an affluent, well-educated audience that would attract the advertisers that you needed to make this product happen, you needed to charge enough money. In order to charge enough money for that, you had to have beautiful paper, you had to have incredible printing, and you needed to be about things that were not seven ways to do pork chops. Dorothy, let's dive into that because that's the important distinction. When you launched in, in 1993. Four. But you started that, putting started, it together yeah, right, in 93. Right, 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 right. But you, your first issue came out in 1994. Um, you know, you're you're thinking that this can't be about five ways to do this or that. You needed to enter through the kitchen door that you're speaking about, but you needed to take your camera crew with you and you needed to start taking uh, reportage photography, which – to me, is the greatest legacy of your publications of war. It is what has changed food media, changed me, personally influenced me a great deal, tremendously for the way I think about taste in all of my cookbooks. But I want to know, how did you make that happen from issue one? Well, remember, Met Home had a really very well-developed food program. Yep. So we had gone on location and we knew we just disdained the prop, the thing, the <laughs> fake thing. Yes. The world the world had had done that and seen that. And that wasn't going to be credible. And the magazine, the magazine had credibility in its core. Yeah. So you had to not mess around. You had to not fake it. Which is such a key point because even today, to this day, a lot of food publications and cookbooks are shot in the studio. Um, and there's whoopsies, which means like that thing of spilled whatever that randomly appears on a cloth napkin, um, which doesn't have any place in that setting. And that piece, that utensil has no place, that that fork has no place there. And so you're like, I want to reject that. So how do you make this magazine, first part? And second part is, what's issue one's story lineup? Take us back to that. Okay, so so basically we had d- decided it was going to be called Sever without an S. Our first story was taking Zarella Martinez to to Oaxaca. Wow. So we, we pulled, it was like a hat trick because there was a magazine whose title you couldn't pronounce, the food of Oaxaca you couldn't pronounce, no. and it, on the cover, instead of a chef or a chicken, a turkey or whatever, there was a young cook yeah. from Oaxaca. A portrait. Yeah, a like, portrait uh, like, of like, a real person who was in that restaurant that day. 
And that that reportage was very, very important to us. The, 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 our compact with our reader was, we'll deliver the honest, the real good. We'll do the research. We'll, do, we'll go to the place where the food is born. And we'll bring you back those stories. And that was our holy grail. Yeah, your North and, Star. And then Christopher became a photographer. She was not a photographer when we started the magazine. She was a food editor. She was a wonderful cook, but she was not a photographer. And she just damn taught herself how to do it. And this is like pre-digital or it's like, I mean, are you you pasting up at this point? Oh, yeah. There's no like there's no computers involved. No, no, no. There there are computers and there are. um, Well, yeah, there's computers involved in the layout, but you're you're pasting up your pages essentially. I can't. I can't even remember. I mean, we were certainly choosing everything on light boxes yeah, from exactly. real film. There's light boxes involved. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we were doing digital layouts at that point. You probably had Cork Express or <clears throat> early Photoshop. We did early Adobe. We did. We did. We did. We had. We, I said Adobe. Adobe. <laughs> I'm thinking too much about food. I'm thinking too much about we food here. Pour that sauce all right. over. Oh, your computer would be great. <laughs> Early Adobe, but like, <laughs> let's 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 talk about when you launch with this Oaxacan young chef with a word that no one really knows. And as an aside, Oaxaca still is undercovered in this day. Like we, yeah. so it's a tourist destination, but we still don't get it right in food it's, media. The fact that you're covering in 1994 is amazing. What is the response? Um, we actually did a focus group. Uh, we mocked up some covers, the the grandmother, how your grandmother makes crepes or something like that. And, and so the people in the focus groups were demographically correct, and they it didn't bother them that they didn't know what the magazine was called or how to pronounce it. They got that it was authentic. Yeah, and they really coveted that because we're talking about a demographic of – you know, these are folks who are high earning and understand aesthetics. And I would imagine are likely pretty coastal, I would think, the first super well, audience. What, what's interesting is that we got we had so many food professionals. Yeah. I never thought we would. I thought, oh, well, they, they know all this. They don't know all this. That's they very didn't know. interesting. We had we put saffron on the cover and I heard from so many chefs they didn't quite know where it came from. They didn't understand the cro- stamens of the crocuses that were pulled out by hand. It's such a great point you bring up because, you know, the Savour 100 was coveted by food professionals in my life. I know I know plenty of chefs in their 40s and 50s who have every issue of Savour 100. Oh, that was great. Well, that was a... That was a magazine that we dreamt up one day because it was, what are you going to do in January? And how about that? And then everybody. Also, we were, I knew a lot of stuff by then. I mean, you always learn and you're always getting smarter. But I, I I knew that it wasn't about fancy offices and I knew that it wasn't about hierarchies of editorial people. Our meetings were always... Everybody, every assistant, every art director, every photo editor, every everybody, every kitchen person, they were all in on the editorial meetings. And you could tell whether an idea was interesting enough mm-hmm. by the way their eyes would light up or not. Yep. And you, ha- you had to argue. 
And I don't mean in a bad way. And there was never, it was always just us because it was such a small company. Mm-hmm. And we were making the the ethos. We were creating it. And we just wanted to be inclusive. And we were. And I think that helped so that, for example, with the Civil 100, Everybody brought in things yep. and had to t- kind of talk about it and sell it to the rest of the group. And that was a, an amazing dynamic. And we got that on the page. We And the, peop- the person who bought it, brought in the idea, would write the thing, would research and write it. Yeah, and, it's, it's pre-internet. And you're thinking, you know, this is all obvious now. You could, you know, search for many different things. Um, but back then, it, editorial was so important for for. Um, access. spreading ac- right, access to mm-hmm. all sorts of food mm-hmm. and all sorts of cultures right. and and being extremely inclusive. And Civil 100, unlike other publications which were doing it mostly from a white point of view, um, was it, this certainly was the opposite. If you look, read the Civil 100s in the 90s, there's food from all over the world and representation is at the highest level. Exactly. And and that was that's the intention. And that was what we promised to our readers. You, we're going to give you something you're not going to find other places. You talk about having a small staff and I'm sure you had a test kitchen and you had overheads back early, like 94, 95. What are the financials looking like? I mean, historically, this is a time when magazines were thriving. You look at Condé Nast, you know, they had this was they were thriving. You know, editors were making millions of dollars, literally, which is crazy to think as an editor that people actually made that much money. How are you fitting into this ecosystem? OK, so we are not. um we are not having the town cars come and pick us up. <laughs> we are not. We have. We did have a test kitchen, which we. I went to IKEA with with our design editor from Garden Design because we were publishing Garden Design at the same time, and we picked out the kitchen. And I think Christopher, we all, all of us designed it. We thought, okay, we need a center. This we need these cabinets. We need whatever. It was an IKEA kitchen. It was great, and it was right next to the conference room where we all had our offices, and it, it was a big. It was called the green room. It mm-hmm. had been an. Um, it had been an ad agency, and so it was the open place, and we just left it open, and we called it the green room. This is that. not the 32nd Street location that you eventually moved to. This Where was this location? This was on 6th Avenue Yeah. Um, in Soho, 100th, 100th Avenue of the Americas. Wow. Having, Spring Street, yeah. Yeah, Soho in the 90s having doing editorial Super out of great. there. Oh, wow. Super great. I, I, I said, you know, you, he, heaven forbid you had to go buy something like stockings. You could go buy important sculpture at lunch. Yeah. <laughs> and you had Dean and DeLuca right yeah, there. Exactly. The original location. Exactly. R.I.P. Exactly. Um, you know, that's a sad story. Uh, the fall of the mighty do fall. Um, but back to the original question, financially, was it working? Was it the was, magazine working? It was working. Perhaps there was a little overpromising to investors um, over the to- over what happened after six years. Chris Meir and his then partner Doug Peabody wound up selling the company to a company called World Publications that did things like surfing magazines, or whatever. But they were niche magazines, mm-hmm. and they and so ultimately they didn't have what it took to sustain it. So that's the tough moment. So six years, that six-year period. It was actually, I mean, I left after seven. And then Coleman Andrews took the magazine on for another five 
years or so. Yeah, so so you yeah. left in 2001. Mm-hmm. And so he would eventually, uh, he was also the editor-in-chief and, and ran it until yep. Osland arrived, right? James yep. Osland. Yeah. Now, when it was sold, did it lose some spirit? I'm, you're, I'm just reading your face a little bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was no, it was, then it was the next generation, the next iteration of of the thing. And yeah. Christopher left at the same time I did. She went, she she went and started, and then she bo- became a photographer and photographed yeah. books for everybody. Yeah. She, you know. What do you take uh, away? What, what should we take away from the seven years that you ran Savor in the early days? What were some of the a couple of the articles, uh, the pieces, the packages that you really feel are the legacy of that early, that first iteration? And probably by my, there's like been five generations of Sephora. I think I could probably iterate. But what do you what do you Give us. I think we, since this had never really been done before, food in the place where it was born, we got to we got to go to places and bring back the stories. We were like food archaeologists, but we didn't want. We also had to be very clear-eyed about what people would make. So if you were doing something with yak yak milk in a mm-hmm. yurt. We're not too interested in that because I don't want to do that at home in my kitchen. Mm-hmm. And that had to be the deciding point. It wasn't just the farthest away, the weirdest, the oddest. It was an anthropology. It, it was, was not yeah. exactly. You said it right. It was not anthropology. It was cooking. And you had to want to make the thing that you were learning about. You had to want to learn about it. There's a wonderful photo, I think it's in the 25th anniversary um, package, uh, of you in the kitchen of Marcella Hazan, and you are in the corner with a notebook, and Coleman's there as well, and she's cooking. And in your book, uh, The Kitchen Whispers, you write so beautifully. The the Marcella Hazan chapter is probably my favorite. I've read half of it so far. Uh Um, And I just want to get a sense of Marcella. um, Was she as difficult as we put her out to be in in the ether? She was she was she was great difficult. Right. She was spectacular and difficult. Difficult meaning that she was not a people pleaser. She was a person who had two graduate degrees, smartest one of the smartest people you'd ever meet. If she liked you, she really liked you. And if she didn't like you, she didn't want to mess around with you. And so we got to go to Venice when she was still living there, and we walked over the bridges to the markets, and she would love the Castelfranco lettuce. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll never forget her holding that up. And and she she would love every creature that was swimming in that lagoon, and she would talk about those things. That's what that's – what Drove her, and it's what drove us too, so it's, we could get crazy together. Exactly, <laughs> it's this pure love of food and cooking mm-hmm. that, again, to today that almost feels like commonplace because we all have such an interest in this. But back then, it felt like there was a community uh, of folks who were that into it, almost to a obsessive level, right? You'd imagine it's a word you probably use about Savor, right? 
session. Well, I think a lot of people cooked in their beds. I think they <laughs> took up the magazine up, up up into bed with them and they read about the thing and they said, Oh, one day I'll do this yeah. or one day I'll do that. And yeah. I don't I don't know that they're you know, that everybody was racing home from their offices and, you know, making couscous. I don't I just don't think that that necessarily happened, but I think you had the, you were satisfied that you weren't being talked down to, you weren't being marketed, you weren't being you know you were being treated as your friend, who you wanted. Yeah, the reader was was our friend. Yeah, and we want we, you. You got to know that. Come this. on, like come join yeah. the party. Okay. I think that's the special sauce for a lot of the cookbooks we publish here um, at Crown. I think that with Ten Speed Press and Potter at the center, it's it's really that inclusivity and like let's. Join join the party up in the up in your bed, you know, right. reading about these cuisines. I think right. that's really is you've said it so well. It's like what food media is at its best. Yeah. Let me ask you. You write the end of the Marcella Hassan chapter about it's her last days in Longboat Key, yeah. and you write about her grocery shopping in these American grocery stores. It's sad, I guess, at the superficial level because you're like this you know, um, incredible, um, this, this giant in, in food and Italian cooking, um, is her last days are, are buying supermarket lettuce. But I think there was a bit of closure in that chapter. I'd like to get a, your sense of that last scene. I, I think, look, it's very sad to see someone you love get older and, and n- not do well. And so it's, it's hard to, it's hard to do that, whether it's your mother or your father or your sister or whoever it is. You just and that's part of life. And Marcella and Victor moved to Longbow Key because their son Giuliano lived nearby with his family. And it was much easier for them to live there. The elevators and the cars, and it just it was easier for them to live there. So she look, she made friends with everybody and she did she did fine. She did fine. It was not the way you want to think about her. I want to think about her in her beautiful kitchen and kitchen that Victor designed every single part of for her. Yeah. Do you still talk to Victor? Uh, I've I've had a correspondence with him. Yeah, because mm-hmm. he just put out the book. He's ninety four. He's ninety four and still still doing it. I'd like to meet him one day. I'd like to talk to him. A lot of questions. Seems like quite the quite the character. Absolutely. Um. Let's talk about Milton Glaser. Lunch with Milton Glaser. This is a gentleman who invented New York Magazine, invented Underground Gourmet. He was the Underground Gourmet. He was the Underground Gourmet. And it's just, it's an interesting person in food media because New York Mag to this day is is a real shining, they they shine a light on all food. And I feel back then that's when they founded New York Magazine. It was part of it. It was thought of, it was part of it. That's, That's interesting that you make that connection. Yes. Mm-hmm. What was that like? What was lunch like with him? I mean, it sounds like he was quite. I mean, he was the original underground gourmet. Yeah. But of course, his his career. I mean, you can Wikipedia Milton Glaser. He's yeah, a titan in design and editorial and and a visionary. One of the finest human beings you'd, you'd ever be lucky enough to meet. And well, he would be excited about. He's he was be excited about a pastrami sandwich. I mean, that was what I mean, it was high low. He could do, you know. He, actually, he was not interested in high. He never yeah. wanted to go to parties or things like that. He wanted to find the little Czechoslovakian place yeah. on the Lower East Side. Wow. I mean, it's. Do, do you have any memory of a meal that you shared that you that you felt like you were un, like uncovering something, like really doing the underground gourmet work? Well, I think with Milton, no. 
but I think that we, that was the driving force. So we were always thinking that we would discover the next thing or the, the we, that's when you're stimulated and excited about what you do, you just keep finding examples everywhere. So true. It's like, and you're always thinking of it as a as an editor, as a writer, and you're 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 writing little notes to yourself. And I want to ask you about Newsweek. You you went on to have a top position at Newsweek, a News Weekly, which is like such an intense job. And you certainly aren't in the kitchen with Marcella Hazan there. You're dealing with presidential debates. And what sent you down that path? And and really, so I when when um, when Mir sold the um, Severin Garden Design to this company that was based in Florida. I said, okay, I'll stay here for a year if you fund the empty positions. And they he, they did. And after a year, it was very clear to me that, that, was n- that this was not going to happen. And um, I had had a wonderful offer to go to Newsweek as and I thought, you are out of your mind <laughs> because I was a, an art an editor of design, of architecture, of of food, of gardens. And this was Newsweek. And it really was a different world. And what happened was 9-11. Yeah. And two wars. Yeah. So in case you weren't quite sure that you weren't at home anymore, Dorothy, in Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. it must have been an exciting challenge, but when the stress really hits and you you think you could be writing about um bully base and and in the south of france and but but did, did you ever you joke that you almost got Castellet on the cover of newsweek <laughs> but but let me ask you did you get food into the pages of newsweek in a cool I did way? I did I did but it, only now and then I I I would review cookbooks every year and I do my 10 favorite books I do um I I did a story on um mail order food and and things that you could yeah and and so I went to all these shows and found the people that I thought were good and I, and I from time to time and I would write pieces I did I did cover Marcella's 80th birthday I love that section in the in the book in your memoir And that was pretty and I actually because Victor asked me a question about it quite recently about a quote I had used in that piece, and I did get to go. I paid for it, but I did get to go and mm-hmm. and made that about. She had a book coming out. Uh, she was eighty. Yeah, you took she, it on the train ride. Yeah, she starts crying on the train, and you write about this sec- this scene, right? And she's leaving, basically leaving this part of Italy. Um, and you're heading up to Venice. Is that near where you were? Well, we were no, we were in Venice, you're and in we Venice. were going to Verona, where that right. where her son was had taken over a, an old house and and made this beautiful dinner for yeah. her. So, and you know, you know, every single moment of that time that this is something so special, and you will never see that again. Yeah, and and it was, and it was. <laughs> You're such a, a fine writer and journalist. It's just obvious talking to you for a few minutes that you really think things through and have a real editorial point of view. And I want to ask you about uh, Kitchen Whisperers, about the structure of this memoir, because it is unique. Um, when you're writing this book, what are you trying to say about these figures that you're profiling in each of the Well, I, what I was 
The reason I did that book was that was to make that experience available to other people, to make them realize that's where they learn the things they learn. And when I realized that I do so many things in my kitchen that came from other people, then I thought, well, I can't be the only person who has these experiences. Other people must have them as well. And so I wanted to share those. As a, and then to have people say, oh, yeah, I do that because my mother did that, or I did that beca because because I didn't like my husband's way of doing yeah. it, or I did it because whatever. Because I, I wanted to kind of open the door to the other people who were in there with me. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. And 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 really you 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 catch up with your your former mother-in-law, which is a beautiful early chapter. Um and you talk about In Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful chapter. But no, but you know, that's not disconnected from Sever and from the books that I've done, which is to give pride of place to what's real and to not fake it. And, you know, we were talking earlier about cookbooks and how they're produced. And it's what I wound up doing after I left Newsweek. I produced a lot of cookbooks. And when I say produced, I'm there yeah. with – there is no food stylist. There is no prop stylist. Yeah. There is no whatever, whatever. There's just me and the chef. Yeah. And we're making the food for the camera. And that, to me, that immediacy, I think, makes all the difference. Yeah, and you and you do this in a in a written form in in your memoir. But when you collaborate with a guy like Mike Solomonov on his two books, and you're working on a third now, it's just um, when you say it's just you and the chef. It, I take such inspiration from that in my books and my work. I feel it's the only way to do a cookbook. It's the only way to make something that readers because. Basically, you're doing it for readers that they will come back to time and time again, and they'll find their own reason for being there. And they, it, it, how could you not be distanced by a prop stylist or a food stylist? Making something perfect is antithetical to making something. I agree. You can't. There's no perfect in a home kitchen. And mm -mm. let's go to the Mike's books, the Salamanov books. You have Zahav, and you have the Israeli Soul. Yes. Um, how do you how do you make these books specifically with Mike and 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 Steve Cook, his partner? How are you How are you doing it? What how you take us through? Because I know Zahav is a beloved book, and I love that book so much. So we're doing Zahav at home right now. I know. Yeah, that's gonna be. Fun. And that will come won't come out until the fall of 24. Yep. But we're closing it this month. Yep. We here's how we did that book. We sat down with Steve and Mike with our art director Don Morris with a recipe editor and our photographer. And Mike Persico is a photographer who's based in Philadelphia and he's done all our books because he's a good very good friend of theirs and does all their work. And we sat there and we said, okay, what should this book be? What do, what do we really want it? What do we want to do? And they said, you know, Zahav at home, we want, we cook our food at home. They're both fathers. Yeah. 
They both have lots of children. Mike had a had a third child while we were yeah. having this book, doing producing this book. And Mike and Steve on this book cooked every single thing. They cooked. Steve went to culinary school. He he also went to Wharton, but yeah. he he went to culinary school. And 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 Mike. And so we were in Mike's kitchen. We maybe did eight or ten food shoots. We would come down from New York, and the, and they would come, and they would be there, and and we did it every single thing. You worked through every recipe. We worked through every in a recipe. real home kitchen. How are you the, as the as one of the writers, the voices, and the producer of the piece? How are you? How are you working? Are you okay? Are, I, I'm I'm a crazy person, so I fortunately same. Fortunately, he had. Uh, Mike and Asima have a very big dining table. So I thought, well, what do you use? I wanted a consistent language of plates and bowls and things. I wanted things that look, looked homey, but I didn't want things that looked old-fashioned. So I, I, I bought a bunch of old restaurant china mm-hmm. on eBay. And we wound up, my beloved husband drove us down a, a a car full of props. They all came from eBay. A couple yeah. of couple of little shops here and there. And we brought them down. And we left them in Mike's office uh, in his garage. And every day, every time we'd shoot, we'd take them out, spread them on the dining table. So they would cook something. And then, and we used all their pots. Yeah, that's the only way. Yeah. You know, and they, because they, they, they're comfortable with it. You know, they're, they're, it, it, somehow it looks right. And so, I don't know, what do you want this chicken on? I don't know, what do you think? I come in with a couple of plates or a couple of platters, whatever, and we look. And we say, oh, let's get in on it. Mike Persico, the photographer, jumps up on the kitchen island in his socks and shoots down mm-hmm. on the food at three quarter, yeah. yeah, yeah, and he's and he's moving. He's everywhere. Yeah, he's which means that by the time and Don is there, looking at the monitor and choosing the pictures that, marking them. Yeah, so that when we go to do the book, it's we kind of have already edited down what we really. Did you start like. with the photos? Do you start with the photo shoot and then go back into the the actual recipe development and recipe writing? Head so, writing? so there is a there, on this book. There was a woman named Kim O'Donnell who was our recipe editor. She was with them, and they were making it up as they went along. Yeah, believe me, they were making it up, and then she would write the recipes and t- take them home to Lancaster where she lived and test every recipe and yeah. write the recipe. And we tested a bunch of them and, and wrote them too. Yeah. It's a but that's how we did it. That's, that's how we did it. Super. I mean, I think it, it feels right because it's familiar. I mean, that's the thing. I think you're like asking like, like, is this right? But I mean, yes, because I think the reader understands that this is real objects versus done in a studio. With- you, you don't want there to be a distance. I agree. You, 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 we share that. We share yeah. it. Yeah. We, sh- we absolutely share it. Um, one more book I want to talk about. We could, you'll, you'll come back, right? We'll talk about more of your, because <laughs> I really, I have, you have a bunch of books you've worked on, but I do want to talk about the Gramercy Tavern cookbook you wrote with Mike Anthony. Um, I'd like to get, we, we published that Clarkson Potter. I'd like to get a sense of how that book was made. Oh, well, that he's, he's an amazing person. And, 
And we we did it at Gramercy, and he was cooking the food, and he was in there, and the and the and it unlike at Mike's house. Now we did another book with Mike Anthony called Vias for Vegetables, right. and he did that in my kitchen. Hmm. We we happened to live in strange life is strange in the same building. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> He's two floors above me. There you go. So he Short came to work. So he came down and we did every single we shot every single thing right there and the same thing all the all the dishes and plates and everything was were pulled from all our stuff. And we we just he cooked the food, we shot it. We we had the he cooked the ingredients, we shot it. Same thing. The Gramercy book, I worked with a a woman Maura McAvoy, a photographer who had been a design editor at Met Home, mm-hmm. and she became a photographer. And so she has great eyes. She knew she what she was looking at. She she just and she was everywhere. Yeah. And we shot a lot of film. We were lucky enough to have wonderful designers and editors here at Clarkson Potter and we made yeah, a Mary Sarah Quinn Mary did that Sa- book. Yeah. She did so so good. Absolute so legend great. in the game. She designed it yeah. and she it was wonderful to work with her. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful book and, and really when you talk about a restaurant book, especially of the era. I mean, when was this published? Twenty or fifteen years ago, maybe? You know, restaurant books then they really needed to capture the spirit of the restaurant during service. Um, and that was one of the the better books in that in that whole genre that was so popular then. A few more questions. Dorothy what is the ultimate power of the cookbook? See, I believe that a cookbook you have to get up in bed with. I believe a cookbook has to be something that you love, that you feel a real connection with. And I that's why I don't believe in stylus and and over over lighting and over propping and because I think it distances the reader. And I've always believed that in when we did Met Home. We we wanted to use reg- n- 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 available light, yeah. um, and and not overlight something so, because the minute something's overlit, it becomes unreal, yeah. and you don't connect with it. And I think that's a cookbook needs to be something that you trust, like a friend, and you and it, that doesn't mean you know everything. It doesn't mean it's always familiar. But you want to learn because you trust the intelligence and the sensibility of the person. Yeah. Can't say much more than that. I fully agree with everything you said there about books. And I'm such a bibliophile myself, and I, I just – I totally love what you just said. Um, what's what's next for you in terms of – I know you said you're wrapping Zahav at home, but do you have some other – I feel like you're you're endlessly curious, and you probably want to work on 50 books. Well – just I don't I'm not sure I'm we have another I have another project with Mike and Steve and I I do I do think this book is an important Zahav at home is important because you can't get into the restaurant I mean I've been to the restaurant once in the last three years <laughs> yeah I mean it's 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 just limited yeah. and it's so popular even with the bat phone it's tough to book there yeah and so I think this is a way of sharing mm-hmm. those ingredients. And I'm right now I'm writing. You want to know how you do this. You you write this stuff. Now, Steve, Stephen Cook 
who who can cook, who has an MBA from Wharton, <laughs> and who launches restaurants with Mike, also writes the part of the cookbook, not the recipes, but the part, the head notes. Yeah. And, and the, so he writes the head notes. He writes. All right. He's yeah. a wonderful writer. And I, I do say that in, in The Kitchen Whisperers, and when Mike said to me, my business partner is a great writer. And I said, Mike, nobody's business partner is a great writer. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out Steve is very funny. He's very witty and he's very intelligent. Yeah. And he manages to bring that to the, to the books. Yeah. It's really I, Steve's. Steve's a fun hang. I, I've had some great conversations. Oh, good with Steve. Um, should be on the. Haven't had him on the show. I should get him on here. I'm going to close um, by asking this question. You're an obvious tastemaker, obvious, and I think you can own that. Not just with with home design and and with food, but with with editorial. Um, let me ask you: Is there something that we don't know that you have a really strong point of view that you consider yourself a tastemaker in with all the all the heart and 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 really not not in an egocentric way, but just in a natural way. I think I've been so lucky that I've gotten to do books about design and architecture. We did books at Met Home that I I still love, and I look and see. We we one of our editors made a table out of a galvanized garbage can, made the base of that with a <laughs> slab of glass over the top. I'm pr- I'm proud. I think of enabling others to be able to do the crazy and wonderful things they come up with. And design is one of them. Food is another. Garden is another. Yeah. Um, You're right about that. There's a great gardening chapter. Yeah. yeah. I, I miss having a garden for the first time in many, many, many years. I've not had one. And I haven't had when we had to sell our house. And I that's something that fed me in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, I mean... It's nice in the spring, but come like September with all those overgrown weeds can be a little challenging. Compost. Yeah, compost, exactly. <laughs> Dorothy Kamins, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Enjoyed being here. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 